And a reminder, next week we are celebrating veterans. Uh, We are inviting our friends, our neighbors who have served our country in a sacrificial way. And I want to encourage you to be invitational. You are a part of the hospitality team of Osterville Baptist Church. And uh, whenever we bring someone into church as a friend, we roll out the red carpet for them. So make sure that you do that and be on time. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I know how you do. I watch every Sunday. But uh, I think it would be very nice honoring if we were here right on time, uh, next Sunday in particular, as the Color Guard presents. And uh, it would certainly show our veterans a lot of respect. So please be on time next week. Do you know what time service starts, by the way? (laughs) Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure. All right, let's open our Bibles together. We're going to open to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. And uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn that to the Gospel of Luke. There's two major parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament's the back third of the Bible. The first book is Matthew. The second book is Mark. The third book is, I think you guys know this by now, Luke. Luke. So we're looking at Luke. We're getting to chapter 5. Now, I believe that 2007 was a year that changed everything. It changed how we do life. I remember where I was when I first saw the commercial. I was watching late night television. A hand appeared on the screen, and it showed this magical device that does it all. It had the GPS. It had access to the internet. It could tell us what time it was. It could help us with our calendar. This iPhone, which was released in 2007, took all of the things that we use to organize ourselves and it compartmentalized them and even individualized them. I can have my own music playlist. I remember it was 2009, there was a commercial that came out that was showing us just how individualized this device could be. It says, do you want to know how much snow was on the mountain? There's an app for that. Are you wondering where you parked your car recently? There's an app for that. How many calories have you consumed through the day? There's an app for that. There's an app for almost anything, only on course, we know it, iPhone. Now, hopefully none of these sound off while I'm preaching this morning, but I do believe that this changed the way that we did life. We carry these phones with us. They keep us connected, and I believe that they've even changed the way that we relate in life. We've become compartmentalized. We've become individualized only on iLife. Have you ever noticed that? It's like we're opening up a series of apps as we move from one thing to another. Oh, going to church? Well, let's close the weekend leisure app. Heading into my car to drive to work. First, let me close the spending time with the kids app. Or I'm in work and someone does something that makes me mad. That's okay. I can say what I want to say. I closed the Jesus app this morning and now... I can say what I got to say. There's an app for just about anything, only in iLife. Now, I believe that this intersects with the Word of God, the way that we do life. You may have remembered last week in Luke chapter 4, we saw something important about Jesus. 
We saw that Jesus has authority. And I asked the question, over what? And we saw that Jesus has authority over everything. In fact, there's not an inch of the universe that Jesus does not lay claim to and say, mine. And we, we've been seeing in the Gospel of Luke that there are two responses so far to this authority. If you remember in Nazareth, the first response that he received was rejecting, rejection. They were ready to throw him off the cliff. And, and I, I submitted to you that we might be ready to do that if we're not willing to let Jesus conflict with our common sense consensus beliefs. In Capernaum, we saw the opposite response, didn't we? That response was acceptance. Now we noted that acceptance is a good thing if acceptance is under Jesus' terms. The problem with acceptance is we tend to want to accept Jesus on our terms, not on His terms. Well, this morning we're going to look at the only response that Jesus will accept. This response is what we call discipleship. And we'll see that discipleship involves a radical shift. We'll be looking at that question, does Jesus just want to be another app in your iLife? And we'll find an answer to that as we define what discipleship is. Now you might be asking the question, well, give me a definition of discipleship. What is it? Well, I can't do that for you. Okay, There's some things that if we try to simplify it, we actually limit what it is because discipleship is not an abstract idea. It is a concrete way of living. Okay, do you get that? We love ideas. We can be less tenacious, though, about putting those ideas into practice. And Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want people with a bunch of ideas. So how do we see that in the Scriptures? Well, discipleship all through the Bible is not defined for us, it is shown to us. And we see discipleship shown to us through the first disciple in Luke, Peter, this morning. We're going to take a look at his story, and we're going to see a couple of principles on discipleship. So, let's pick up this story. We move from Capernaum to the shores of the lake of Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 5, verses 1-3. through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat." Now notice what is happening with Jesus' preaching ministry. He moves from the ideal space. The synagogue is the place where people come to listen. They're ready to listen. There's some kind of structure around listening. And now Jesus has moved out to the places where people go, which can get a little less controlled. There's a lot of variables. In fact, he's standing right now on a fisherman's landing. You know the smell. People cleaning nets. They've cleaned their fish here. And the crowds are pressing around him. Ken Bailey shares this. He says that Jesus enters the world of the people rather than expecting them to step out of that world and come to him. Now I wonder, 
if churches need to start thinking this way a little more. Just a thought. The press of the crowd is making good speaking unworkable. They're literally pressing against him. So Jesus looks and he sees Peter, who is called Simon in the text, cleaning his nets, and he asks if Peter will take him out on the boat. Now, if any of you have done boating around here, and I think on Cape Cod you've done it a time or two, you know what happens with voices over water. The voices are carried across the water. They're also amplified. So sitting out in this boat, he now has a mobile pulpit where he can speak, and uh, everybody's got to work together for this. Peter has a job. Jesus has a job. Peter's got to keep the boat steady. Jesus has to preach those life-giving sermons that are revolutionizing hearts. Now, one thing you may not know is that Peter is dog-tired right now. This guy is gassed. Something about professional fishermen. Here's the thing about professional fishermen. They're professional for a reason. (laughs) They know where the fish bite. They know when the fish bite. And they place their bodies in those locations at those times. So, in the Sea of Galilee, the time that the fish bite is not from 9 to 5 on our normal work day. No, it's overnight. And so he's just been out all night fishing. He's gotten off of the night shift and he's gone through this tedious task of cleaning a net. I got to tell you, if you've ever done anything like that before, it is tedious. Jesus looks over at him and says, Peter, I got a little job that I need you to do. Would you take me out on this boat so that I can preach to the people? Now, Peter's happy to do this, but it's not a little favor. He's holding a boat steady so that it doesn't drift down the lake so that Jesus can preach the gospel and people can hear the gospel. As he's doing all of this, he's dog-tired, he's ready, thinking about bed, Jesus then says something else. Look at verses 4 and 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Let me paraphrase that for you a little bit, okay? Teacher, you see my friends and I over here? We're the professionals. (laughs) We know how to catch fish. We know when the fish bite. We know where the fish bite. We've been out all night doing this. And and I got to tell you, we were in the right location at the right time. We cast our nets a lot, and we didn't take in a single fish. And now you're telling us to go to the entirely wrong place at the entirely wrong time to catch fish. I'm tired. I'm trying to help you out here. You know what Peter's struggle is right now? It's a struggle that many of us can have. He understood the world a certain way. He knew that Jesus has a lane. He knew that He has a lane. And and Jesus has just like steered over into Peter's lane. And we, we can do this. We can say, Jesus, you don't know about business like I know about business. Come on. Jesus, 
Have you ever triaged a patient in the ER? Because I've done that, and I've been trained extensively on how to do that. Jesus, you've never closed a deal on the house. Jesus, you don't know what it's like today. We don't do dating and community like people used to do those things when you do. You don't know what it's like to find a spouse. Jesus, you don't know the demands on my schedule. I mean, my kids, they're in every which direction. You've got sporting events, social outings, and you know sometimes I need to recover. I need some me time. I need getaways, Jesus. Or you don't know about my financial situation. You don't know about the, the, the burden of having a mortgage and a car payment and all of these Netflix and things that just pile up on the credit card. Jesus, you just don't know these things. Essentially what we're saying to Jesus as we say this is, Jesus, you stay in your lane because the things you should know about are like Sunday school and women's Bible study and men's events and preaching the gospel and, and all those kind of things. Don't worry, Jesus. I still open those apps too. But these apps, I know how best to operate these apps. Now listen closely here. We believe that certain things are absurd. Certain things that Jesus asks from you. Because we think that we're the subject matter expert of those things. I know what is necessary to function in today's world. Jesus, you functioned in a different world. And some of the things that he asks you to do just feel absurd to you. So what do we do with those things? Well, when you look at Peter's example in this story, Peter, even though he registers this ask as absurd, you read on, and I'll read to you from the New Living Translating, but because you say so, I will do it. Guys, that's the key to discipleship. That's the key to it all. Disciples trust Jesus even when it feels absurd to do so. Alistair Begg shared these thoughts. He said, when all seems incongruous, when it challenges our view, when we find ourselves in our area of expertise having it turned upside down, when all that we have to go on is the Word of Christ, then we face the opportunity for a turning point. Friends, that is the space where transformation happens. It's that place when you think you know what you're supposed to be doing, but Jesus asks you to trust Him. And it's in that space when Jesus' authority is able to shine forth. And you realize something about how in control He is. And that changes your heart. To trust him. What feels absurd to you right now when it comes to following Jesus? What makes you feel like Peter? Where you say, I'm dog tired. You have your lane, I have my lane. And how are you going to respond with that? Are you going to say, stay in your lane? Or are you going to allow Jesus to cross over? into your lane. Now, Peter, we're going to look at him again and see how he handles this dynamic. It's important to note that to obey this ask was to dip the nets again into the water. 
Okay? So think about this. You've just finished cleaning the nets. You dip the nets into the water again. You bring the nets back out with no fish. Guess what you get to do all over again? And not only that, this is not a one-man job, so he has to ask other individuals to get involved with the job. And I'm sure somewhere in the back of Peter's mind, he's sitting there looking at that crowd and saying, everyone's going to think I'm a fool if I throw my nets into the water right now. But verse 6 and 7, we see what he does. He obeys. And when they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, if you're a fisherman or fisherwoman, you know what it's like to get the big catch. Okay? When you get the big catch, what do you do? Well, I know what I do. I become my own publicity agent on Facebook. My profile picture changes. There is a picture of me and Jesus standing next to this big catch of fish. And I know how to embellish the story. I overemphasize my part of the story. And I underemphasize Jesus' part of the story. But what does Peter do? He falls to his knees. And he says, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, as you read this story, if you were reading this story for the first time, is that even in your, your band of thought that Peter would just fall to his knees right then and there? Why does he do this? Go away? I'm sinful? Well, Peter, the seasoned fisherman, could clearly see the majesty of God in this catch. In Jesus, he could see an authority that only God could own. An omniscience that only God could have. A holiness that only God could possess. And in the Bible, anytime we see a sinful human being overwhelmed by the majesty of God, they fall to their knees and they say something like this, go away, but not because they're rebelling against God, but because they see within themselves that they're fundamentally flawed and that they can't be in His presence. It was John Stott and his magnum opus, The Cross of Christ, who wrote these words. He said, That God is holy is foundational to biblical religion. And so is the corollary that sin is incompatible with holiness. All those who were granted even a glimpse of His glory were unable to endure His sight. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When Isaiah had his vision of Yahweh enthroned and exalted, he was overwhelmed by his sense of uncleanness. As for those who were confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, even during this earthly life when His glory was veiled, they felt profound discomfort. For example, He provoked Peter in a sense of his sinfulness, of his unfitness to be in His presence. And when John saw His ascended magnificence, he fell to his feet as though dead. 
time and again. Those who are brought into God's presence, they fall, they cry out, go away. They're overwhelmed with their sinfulness. And God in that moment meets them with his lavish grace. Think of Gabriel's conversations in this story so far. Zechariah, Mary, the angels. And what does he say to them? He says, do not be afraid. Or here, the one who has stepped out of eternity, the Word made flesh in Luke 5.10, looks at Peter and says to him, do not be afraid. Friends, that's grace. That is biblical grace. Grace is not something that I expect to have in my life. It's not something that I say, oh, you know, I'm going to church this morning. I am owed grace. Grace is that thing that comes entirely out of left field and surprises you. And why does it surprise us? Well, because we're used to a world that lacks grace. There's a lot of people who don't know nearly as much about you as God does. And when they find out certain things about you, what do they do? They reject you. Or even the own, our own sense of shame that we carry because there's certain things that, that we have carried in our life and we're afraid that if anyone ever found out about those things, that their response to us would be, go away. Or maybe we try to salve our conscience and say, well, I have nothing to be ashamed of. Well, Friend, ignoring it does not unburden a guilty conscience. But get this about God. God knows everything about you and He accepts you entirely in Jesus. You see, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, He accepts you flaws and all. He knows all of the sins that you are ashamed of. He knows all of the areas of your life that must be different. And hear that. He, he, he doesn't sweep the sin under the, the rug and say, oh, that's okay that you're like that. That's fine. We'll, we'll just pretend like that's not there. No, it must be different because God wants you to be the person that He always intended you to be, that He created you to be. So how does that happen? How does God make us different? Well, the Bible tells us it's through the Gospel. Now notice how Peter models this for us. I want you to go look at verse 5. Look at the title that he calls Jesus in verse 5. In verse 5, he calls him Master. Epistates term of respect, meaning, Jesus, I look up to you. You've demonstrated a, a quality that makes me want to be like you. I look up to you. Now look at verse 8. He calls Jesus Lord. Kurios. No longer is he saying, Jesus, I look up to you. Now he is saying, Jesus, I look to you for everything. To you for everything. This is the second principle of discipleship. Disciples grant Jesus total access to their total life. 
If you don't hear anything else, friends, hear this. There is not an app for that. There is no app for that. Jesus will not be compartmentalized. He will not be boxed in. He will not be placed within a set of boundaries in our life. He is either Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. He has not come just to give us something to do for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings. He wants to invade the everyday private spaces of our lives. Now, I know that when I hear something like that, I say, boy, that's sounds a little overwhelming, but the thing is, he cannot bring his grace into your world until he does that, until you open up your heart entirely to him. He wants to sit alongside of you. He wants to come be Lord of your thought life. He wants to be Lord of what you're watching on Netflix. He wants to be Lord as you're driving the car to work. He wants to be Lord as you're sleeping in your hotel room by yourself. He wants to be Lord of your job, Lord of your marriage, Lord of your home, Lord of your leisure pursuits, Lord of your sporting endeavors. And I've got to tell you, there's no app for that. Because he can't be confined. He can't be an app. He must be the operating system. All the apps must open and close with Jesus in control. And that's what needs to be different in all of us. We have to move out of the operator position and we have to let Jesus move into that space. And as you do that in your life, that's when the grace flows. That's when you experience it. That's when you feel it. That's when you know it down to the very core of who you are that there's nothing in me that He has seen or observed that He rejects. He accepts me entirely. Not only does He give me access to His grace, but as we see this story move on, He starts using me to be a grace dispensary. Listen to what I'm saying again. When Jesus takes control, He takes what needs to be different in us, and He transforms us with His grace. He transforms us from needing to be different so that now we become a difference maker. Now what is this? What does this look like? What is this purpose that Jesus brings into our world? Well, he offers it to us in verse 10. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. And he extends that purpose to Peter, James, and John, this inner core uh, disciples. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to Peter is like, Peter, I brought you out on this boat. I knew that you were dog-tired. I brought you into this place to teach you the most important message of your life. You see, you thought that you were a professional fisherman. But I'm here to tell you that you are a disciple who happens to fish. And I'm planning to use your entire skill set, all of your expertise, all of the moments of your life, Peter, to bring about an eternal purpose. But here's what you have to start doing, Peter. You have to stop being a professional and you have to start being an amateur. I'll come in and show you what real fishing is. Now, 
the language that you, Jesus uses here, it, it turns the idea of fishing on its head. Uh, when we think of fishing, of course, we think of something that really doesn't do the fish too well, right? It doesn't benefit the fish. Uh, when you hook a fish and net a fish and bring it onto the land and then carve all the meat off the fish, well, the fish dies. And even when we try to be humane with the fish, we're still taking them outside of their natural environment. I remember when I was in college, I was a biology major in an ichthyology class, which is not uh, another branch of theology. It is a branch of zoology that has to do with fish. And we wanted to gather some information on fish, so very humanely we went out in a boat at night, stuck electric probes into the water, shocked the junk out of fish so that they floated up to the top of the water, and netted those fish and measured them and then threw them back into the water. Like I said, fishing doesn't tend to be very good for the fish. However, Jesus uses a term that means to capture alive, and it envisions life-saving measures. So Peter's profession is no longer a profession of death. It will now, his call, will now become centered on saving life. He's called to reach people with the gospel just as Jesus right now is reaching people with the gospel. You know, this call, this change of profession isn't just for Peter and his partners. <laughs> it's for everyone who has trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, I know that many of us struggle with this purpose. I mean, if there's any message that the pastor preaches that makes us just like pop tums after church because we're kind of nervous about it, is when the pastor gets up on Sunday morning and says, all right, everybody, I want you to leave church today and just go share Jesus with someone kind of feels like that ichthyology class, doesn't it? We're trying to shock people out of their natural environment and hopefully we'll net a couple. Sign me up, preacher. I'm ready for that. I'm all in. Let's do this, right? Well, Rebecca Manley Pippard shares of her experience. Uh, she came to Christ and engaging in the call felt extremely awkward to her. She wrote in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, these words. She said, there was a part of me that secretly felt evangelism was something you shouldn't do to your dog, let alone your friend. To evangelize, it seemed, required insensitivity and inclination to blurt out a memorized gospel outline without inhaling to every stranger you met. It never occurred to me that my pre-Christian, unredeemed, almost common sense understanding about how to relate warmly to people might be valid. And as she was engaging in this, think about the purpose that Jesus has just described. She was operating out of a guilt-driven purpose. Jesus is telling people to Peter to operate out of a life-giving purpose. Now listen as she talks about the guilt. I knew Christians were called on to do hard things, and because it was so hard to do, I thought such evangelism had to be spiritual. The result was that I would put off witnessing as long as possible. Whenever the guilt became too great to bear, I would overpower the nearest unsuspecting skeptic with a nonstop running monologue and then dash away thinking, whew, well, I did it. 
It's spring and hopefully the guilt won't overcome me again till Christmas. And then she puts in parenthesis, and I'm sure my skeptic friends hope the same. She said, I witnessed like a Pavlonian dog. The bell would ring. I would get ready, activate the juices running, and then bam, I'd spit it out, drool and dribble and all. Now, if you know anything about fishing, you know that startling fish is not a good method of fishing. Yes, occasionally you can cast your lure and it falls right in the perfect spot and the fish just, boom, hits the lure. I remember one time I was out sharing Christ and I I went up to a guy, just cold style evangelism. If you were to die today, do you know where you would go today? Do you ever even think about eternal thoughts? And his eyes were like wide like this and he looked at me and he said, yes, I do actually every day. And then he invited me into his house. I shared the entire Gospel with this guy and he trusted Christ as his Savior. But here's what I'm saying. I'm not sure if that's the normal approach to evangelism, just like you don't normally catch fish by just throwing the lure directly on the fish. Good fishing, good evangelism requires finesse. The more transparent we are with people, the more we are genuine with them, the more we say that I care about you and I want to openly talk to you about my faith, I think we see better results that way. Uh, Rebecca Pippert said this. She was learning how to do this in Spain, and she learned this finesse through a, a mentor named Ruth. Ruth came up with this crazy idea. She said instead of like assaulting people with the gospel, why not get a group of people together and tell them that you would like to have a Bible study where you talked about Jesus. Now, Rebecca thought that was insane. But she decided to give it a try, so she walked up to a group of students and just kind of blurted out, hey guys, would you join a Bible study with me so that we can learn about Jesus? And instead of hearing what she thought she was going to hear, you have to be kidding me, get out of here. She heard, yes, we would love to do that. Friend, I think asking someone in a genuine, straightforward way to say, I'd love to talk to you about my faith is a lot less heartburn-inducing than running by them and screaming Jesus as you go. So let me ask you something this morning. Would you start praying to those ends? Would you start praying about a couple of people that God's placed on your heart and say, Lord, just give me the words to say to invite them to a conversation. And if they say no, they say no. And if they say yes, fantastic. And if they meet with you and they become more interested in faith, I want you to do this next step. Invite them to church and take responsibility for them. Roll out the red carpet. Make sure that they get to know people and make friendships. And don't think that Everyone else here is responsible for your friend. You feel responsible for your friend. I believe that that's how we see life change happen in its most natural way. So how, do we, how are we going to respond to this challenge where Peter, James, and John show us how we should respond? Verse 11, 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now here's the last principle. Disciples leave everything to become a difference maker. Now what does it mean to leave everything? I want to suggest to you this morning that I don't believe that Peter, James, and John left those fish to rot on the seashore. I believe that they gathered up the fish, they, they finished the responsibilities that they were doing with the intention that I am going to follow Jesus. In fact, as you look through the Gospels, guess what Peter still has? His boats. And there's actually occasions where we see Peter not on mission, fishing. So what I'm saying to you here this morning is leaving everything means that Peter no longer allowed anything to be supreme over his call to be a difference maker. He would not sideline his call for Jesus, for fishing, for family, for leisure, for friends. But here's the deal. Those apps would still open, but Jesus would open them and control them. Friends, here's the challenge this morning as we close down. God's word this morning is challenging you to be a difference maker. That's what disciples do. It's the only acceptable response to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. When we do what he tells us to do, we make him Lord. Wherever you go, wherever you, whatever you are doing, whenever you are doing it, you are called to make a difference in that space. You see, difference makers think like this. They make the spread of Christ's glory their supreme aim. So that no matter what situation you're in, you have a grace plan in mind for the people. You're like one beggar who has found bread and you're just telling other beggars where they can find the bread. Difference makers uh, exhibit a gracious boldness. They don't hide the light. They bring out the light as people are ready to receive it. And they do this in a winsome way, not an awkward way. You know what difference makers are? They're others-focused. Yes, they have strong emotional health, and I think we should, but they are not preoccupied with themselves. They're not completely, entirely focused on their problems. In fact, they don't think about themselves often at all. They're not concerned with being right. They're intensely interested in others. Difference makers sacrifice their immediate desires because eternity burns so intensely in their hearts. Difference makers leverage everything, our time, our resources, our energy, our will even to accomplish Christ's mission. And here's the thing about difference makers. They don't tend to be world leaders and CEOs, even though Christ loves using those types. They're not normally sophisticates or Ivy League grads or people with model-like beauty or those who possess supernatural talent. They are not the visionary because they are too busy carrying out the vision of the visionary. They are you. They are me. They're the everyday, ordinary disciple doing the next right thing that over time leads to extraordinary things. So again, what the Word of God is saying to you this morning, be a difference maker. Be the called out one that Jesus 
can use to change the world area by area, culture by culture, language by language, disciple by disciple, decision by decision. Friends, this morning as we close down, I imagine that God is speaking to your heart. Maybe in this room this morning, God is laying something specific on your heart. I want to call the elders to come forward and we're going to close with song and prayer. And if God's laid something specific on your heart about being a difference maker, I want you to come forward with the elders and talk to them. Tell them what God's laying on your heart. Maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself, boy, something needs to be different in my life. Be like Peter. Humble yourself. I, I, I think of a pattern of sin, maybe, that you haven't turned over to Jesus. Come and talk to one of the elders and confess it. You don't have to tell them your whole life story. Just say, I'm struggling and I need someone to pray for me. Maybe there's a marriage in this room this morning that's on the rocks. Husband and wife, come hand in hand and, and share that with the elders. Or maybe there's a child that's been running away from the Lord that you want to pray about. Husband and wife, hand in hand. Or a desire to be different at work. Or a friend you are praying to share Jesus with. Ask for courage with that. Or maybe God's placed a call on your life. A call that you've been neglecting, whether it's to the mission field or to serve in ministry in some way. Come forward and ask for accountability. Let's be difference makers. Let's share what God's laying on our hearts. Let's pray together this morning. Would you come? Would you stand with us as we sing? And